One of the tasks I found as I wrote Rising was just to learn to pay attention to all the different species who make their lives in that liminal space between ocean and land and to ask them, human more than human, what they might tell us sort of about the future that we share and what it means to live in a shifting landscape. Welcome to the Ocean State of Mind, a proud project of the Ocean Foundation. I'm your host, Damian Evans. I'm an educator and an ocean lover investigating novel ways we can learn from and help save our oceans. Today, I'm excited to share that we have the author, Elizabeth Rush. She wrote the recent book, Rising, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. When Elizabeth started writing the book, she realized the early places we see sea rise is in the communities and species that inhabit the edges of our oceans and land. It's a fascinating, poetic journey. Our conversation takes us into the communities like those on Staten Island that have already been displaced by sea rise. She walks us through the financial incentives we need to have in place to protect our most at-risk communities and how we as humans can creatively adapt, protect, and preserve our most cherished environments. What if, Elizabeth shares as an example, we, we create the world's largest national park? What if the entire eastern seaboard of the United States was a national seashore, 90,000 miles long? She also shares some wild stories of a 60-day research trip she took to the Thwaites Glacier in the Antarctic. If you listen to the end, you'll learn how to tranquilize an elephant seal to gather data below what is sometimes called the Doomsday Glacier. Let's drop in. So welcome everybody. Uh, we have on the line Elizabeth Rush, the author of the recent book, Rising, the finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. So congratulations and hello, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me, Damien. And I'm just so pleased to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you picking up the phone. I've once again ridden on the coattails of my wife, who is a photographer, Stephanie Alvarez-Evans, who took the photo for your book, which is how we met. I get compliments on that photo all the time. And I also understand that uh, you're expecting a baby, so congratulations. Thank you. 37 weeks today. So we're in the zone of anything could happen. Okay, this might be a very exciting interview. <laughs> yeah. Shall we jump in? Yeah, I'm like, okay, I've eaten my orange. We've talked about surfing. <laughs> oh, we may talk about surfing more. You'll never, you never know. I, okay. I'd like to slip it in. I, I've got to ask just at the beginning, in part because the broader context of the Ocean State of Mind project is uncovering the links between mindfulness meditation and ocean conservation. So I, I was drawn to the short quote you included at the beginning of Rising, your new book on uh, sea level rise. And it's a quote by Simone Weil, or Whale, uh, which states just simply, attention is prayer. And I wonder, why did you include that? And what does that mean for you or for the topic of this book? It's, I, I adore that quote. And I sometimes think that there couldn't be a better opening to rising. And yet at the same time, there's like actually a lot to unpack there, even though it's just three words. You know, when I started this project, one of the things that became pretty apparent pretty early on was that this interface between the ocean and the seashore 
was a space in which we were starting to see the early impacts of climate change. I really started writing Rising Lake back in 2011. And I think at that point, climate change still felt a little bit hypothetical, like it was something that was going to happen in the future and that we would prepare for it. And as I started to dig into the subject of sea level rise, I saw that climate change was really happening all around us in the present tense. And one of the things that also became pretty apparent was that people who lived in place and in particularly low-lying places for long periods of time can see the change that's happening at the shoreline, at this liminal space where water meets land. And and that those of us who've moved around often can't or are have a difficult time noticing these shifts because they're subtle, but they're ongoing. And so one of the tasks I found as I wrote Rising was just to learn to pay attention to all the different species who make their lives in that liminal space between ocean and land and to ask them, human more than human, what they might tell us sort of about the future that we share and what it means to live in a shifting landscape. And so learning to pay attention, learning to see what I might otherwise overlook became a source of sort of religious practice, a thing that you return to And that also has an element of sort of hope embedded in it because through that act of return and regular engagement, you are also choosing a different set of values, choosing to spend time with species that you might otherwise overlook. The idea being that ultimately, hopefully you'll end up acting as an advocate on their behalf. So, you know, that's like a... There's a lot going on there for me, for sure. (laughs) I thought there might. Let's take a look at that that intersection of land, that liminal space, at the place that you begin the book, which is Rhode Island, which also happens to be where you and I are currently living. Rhode Island, the state moniker is the Ocean State. I don't know where that actually generated originally. My sense is it's because we have more coastline than highways. We have a huge bay, Narragansett Bay. We have tons of beaches. So the, the the water and the sea and the ocean and the coastline is very present for residents here. And I, I wonder if you could just share a bit about what you've learned about our state's geology, our coastline, the wet the wetlands and or per, you know, perhaps the species that folks may not know about or that we should be paying attention to. Yeah, I think I mean I also don't know where the ocean state comes from exactly, but we have, I think it's like the second highest ratio of uh, coastline to acreage. And that's, I think, higher only in Maryland. And then Hawaii is third or something like that. So we have a lot of ocean front frontage here. And like most places on the East Coast, over the past 200, 250 years, we've seen a lot of that, in particular, the wetlands, the saltwater wetlands that that are so common along the East Coast because of the way the Laurentide ice sheet withdrew tens of thousands of years ago, a lot of them have been backfilled 
and developed. So, you know, downtown Providence, a lot of downtown Providence is situated on top of what was once a salt pond and part of these really amazing coastal ecosystems. And so I think, you know, in the most basic sense, when we have a storm and these places flood, people are surprised, but really you're starting to see a pre-industrial topography make itself manifest. And so you can see that all you know, throughout Rhode Island. One of the things that I did when I moved here, I was already writing about sea level rise and I started to seek out the wetlands of the state. And so we have a really great bike path, as you probably know, that runs along the East Bay. And I would, you know, very early on in my time of becoming a Rhode Islander, just hop on my bike and bike down to Jacobs Point, which was one of my favorite wetlands. And there, I discovered a bunch of coastal hardwood trees that were dying because of saline inundation. And this is something that I had seen in other coastal communities, in particular in Louisiana. And it's something that I would recognize, come to recognize as like an early sign of sea level rise. You see these big hardwood trees that are sort of look very skeletal often on the farthest edge of a wetland or littered throughout the wetlands and they've died because their tap roots have started sucking up more salt water than fresh. And so I started to bike out to this wetland and sort of like bear witness to and spend a lot of time with these trees. And one of the things that I hope readers will come away from um, this book with is the ability to you know, go out in their own coastal wetlands and start to see and recognize these tree shapes, these rampikes, these trees that have died because of saline inundation. Because once you start to notice them, they're everywhere. I mean, they're really everywhere. So I remember my editor took the train up from New York, gosh, I mean, years ago when she was editing the book and she was coming up to Providence to see me. And she called me from the train and she's just like, there's ram bikes everywhere. I'm seeing them all along the train route. And, you know, that I think is really important. It's important for us to learn how to see how fundamentally the world around us is changing. Because it's hard to put your finger on like one degree warmer. What does that actually look like? That can be tough to identify. But ram pikes, big hardwood trees that are dying are hard to overlook once you learn how to see them. For sure. So you may have just answered my next question, but I know in your book, you, you had the chance to talk with the geologist, Hal Wainless, who's, who's known for you know stridently raising the alarm about sea level rise. And you suggested you had one question that you were going to ask him. So I'll ask you the same one now. What, what single event woke you up to the reality of sea level rise? Um, I would say two things. It was sort of a two-tier process. The first was that I had been sent to do a reporting trip on the India-Bangladesh border fence, which is the longest border fence in the world. And I was sent the year it was completed. I spent about a month in India and a month in Bangladesh. And folks in Bangladesh again and again would tell me that the fence wasn't really a problem, that you could bribe your way through, that you could like sneak through under the cover of darkness. 
that the real issue was that saline had started to arrive in the aquifer and their crops were failing and this was leading to widespread displacement. And that's when I kind of knew that sea level rise wasn't this thing that was going to happen in the future, that it was happening now. And yet I felt like if there was an early climate change cliche, it was like either a polar bear or a Bangladeshi person drowning in, you know, higher tides and stronger storms. And so I came back to the United States from that reporting trip with this idea that I was going to seek out communities impacted by sea level rise in the United States to try to show that it was happening here. And then the second thing was that I was working at the College of Staten Island when Hurricane Sandy struck. And a lot of my students, our college campus closed for a couple weeks, and a lot of my students didn't make it back to school. They were displaced by the storm, and many of them worked and went to school at the same time. And they had a really tough decision to make sort of in the storm's wake about whether or not they wanted to go back to school or keep their jobs. And many chose, you know, financial security over education. And that's when I started to also understand that like the impacts of these changes would manifest really differently in different communities, depending on your socioeconomic status. And I feel like that was sort of a second a second revelation that also further shaped the way this book came together. So it's happening now and it's impacting the most vulnerable communities in ways that are really fundamentally different than the way it impacts, you know, those living at the southern tip of Manhattan. Yeah, can you t- I mean the equity issue here is the massive piece of all this and and many of the communities that have the most to lose or the, the most vulnerable don't have choices, you know, and I think you talked about the relocation that happened in, in, in different communities. And that's all well and good if you own a home and, you know, you can you can you have some assets and resources and other family members. But a lot of folks don't and uh, don't have those resources and can't get out. And I just wonder if you might talk about maybe some of the communities that you encounter that you write about in the book that are really facing a very different scenario than the second family New Yorker who's going to be up in Vermont mountains, you know? Yeah, I think the way I started to think about it is that there are places, I mean, I guess there's a couple fundamental dividing lines, like there are places that can design their way out of the early impact of the rise by through innovative infrastructure projects that are funded by property taxes. So we see that in Miami Beach. We see that they have flood, you know, dozens and dozens of flood pumps all over the beach that pump out the streets every day and they're raising their roadways and they're pump. I mean, you know, they're taking out bonds and they are Um, pumping millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars into what is essentially, you know, buying 30 more years of the beach. It's not a long-term solution, but it kicks that can down the road for a little bit. And then there are communities that just can't afford to do that. And so in those places, you see 
uptick in flooding events that are either related to storms and or that are related to tidal events, sunny day flooding, king tides, whatnot. And, you know, there's all there's been a lot of great studies released over the past like 10 years that just show that we have, again, especially on the east coast of the United States, an increase in these they're not like big storms. They're just like, oh, suddenly there's three inches of water in the street flood events. And, you know, the communities that can't afford these expensive infrastructure projects at first have to live with that. And then simultaneously, usually their housing values go down. And sometimes that'll put a homeowner underwater alone. And in other places, you might see those depressed housing values, and then you get a storm event, and suddenly your house is worth way less than it was previous to the storm, and no one wants to buy it because they know that it sits on this soggy land, and then you're kind of stuck. It's like, no one's going to buy it. I have a mortgage. I can't afford to sell it for you know, 50% less than what I paid for it, so I guess I'll just stay. And we have a national flood insurance program in this country that for very different reasons that, you know, used to make sense, but no longer do says, if you file a claim, you have to rebuild on top of the land that flooded. So (laughs) they, they wanted to cut down on land on speculation of people buying flood prone homes filing claims and leaving 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But now that's trapping people in what are called severe repetitive loss properties. And sometimes you'll find these properties and, you know, they've, you have homeowners who filed 10, 11 claims to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's um, one of the largest expenses to the National Flood Insurance Program, which is $30 billion in debt, are these severe repetitive loss properties. So people are stuck in their homes that are flooding and they might want to leave, but they don't really have a good way to get out at the present moment. Yeah. What, <laughs> what are the... Um, laugh, but it's, you know, it's sort of like an absurd situation. Yeah. Well, I know I sort of made this sort of shocked face. It's hard to imagine what the solutions look like. I mean, because we're, we're talking about you know, not just in this country, but around the world, hundreds of millions of people that are probably facing similar scenarios. Yeah, I feel like one thing that I've really come around to while working on this book is the idea that retreat is sort of inevitable in places. Um, not, It's not like we're going to abandon all of New York City, but the lowest lying land probably won't make sense to continue to live atop. But that doesn't mean that we can't visit it. That doesn't mean that we're going to lose our relationship with the ocean. One of the things that I think a lot about is how you could, for instance, change some of the rules and regulations in the National Flood Insurance Program to empower homeowners to move away from repeat flood properties and then potentially move that land into a kind of national commons or treasury. A lot of folks who study managed retreat say, you know, it's as important to have a vision of what you want to achieve as it is to what you want to avoid. And so 
one thing that started to percolate in that conversation is a discussion around what if we talk about building a national seashore? What if you have the largest national park in the world and it wraps the entirety of the coast and is 90,000 miles long? You know, in some ways, I think about the national seashore out at Point Reyes and how that's like an incredible resource for that community and a place that's held in common and has a lot of pride attached to it and really deepens people's relationship with the sea. I think that we have to have a vision of, you know, if we're going to give up some of the places that we've called home, there has to be a reason for it and there has to be. Uh, something that we gain in the process. And so I think it's important to circulate ideas like that as well. Yeah, that's that that starts getting very exciting. And and you saw it and you wrote about it in the Staten Island community where multi-generation homeowners in that neighborhood who had to move, they started they all started making the decision to relocate. And but only if Right. It, it would be preserved and not swooped in on on some developers that get to like make some money in the next 15 years and then they have to move. Yeah, that to me was really fascinating. People were like, if someone's going to take my home and bulldoze it and then turn it into like high rise luxury apartment buildings, I'd rather like rot in that home. Like they got really I, I actually am sort of at a loss for what quite the word is, but there's like. I'm not going to give up my sense of who I am and where I come from. So someone who just happens to be wealthier than me can make a pretty penny and claim it as their own. Like they're people wanted to move away from risk, but if they felt that that sacrifice contributed to some larger good and, you know, I think that there's hope in in there, in that. I think that that's a very beautiful gesture. And and mind you, like, this is not uh, tree-hugging, progressive, you know, community where everyone drinks kombucha. This was, like, working-class Staten Island, postal workers, firemen, civil servants, people who I hadn't necessarily pegged as the most likely to embrace, like, a really radical climate change adaptation solution but the mixture of being sort of fate knowing that they're vulnerable knowing that it's not going to necessarily get better and then being presented with an option that both allowed them to maintain their equity and helped them feel like the their community was being honored all of that i think contributed to their participation in this program yeah that's great let me let's go to just why the reasons behind seas rising. And, you know, I think people often think that the oceans are rising because glaciers are melting into them, which is one of the big reasons. And then the other is thermal expansion, right? That water expands as it heats up, sort of like when you boil water, it flows over the top of your pot. And it's just sort of, it's very hard to wrap one's head around sort of what this all looks like on a global scale. And I wonder, and, and I want to ask about the Antarctic expedition. So you recently were, I think, an artist and writer in residence for the National Science Foundation and went on a 50 plus day scientific voyage to one of the most remote places in the world to see the Thwaites Glacier. 
And I wonder if you could just talk, first of all, like how was that expedition? That sounds amazing and, and slightly insane. And perhaps just what it feels like to be so close to a glacier of that size as we talk a little bit about sea rise and, and, and those pieces. Sure. I should say, you know, you're absolutely right to point to thermal expansion as a cause of sea level rise. And something that a lot of people don't know is that 93% of the heat that's been trapped on our planet as side effect of higher CO2 levels and greenhouse gases is stored in the ocean. So like when we think, oh, it's one degree warmer here, the ocean is heating up much more quickly than the atmosphere. And that's actually really important in the context of glacial loss in Antarctica. So if you were looking down on Antarctica from space and you removed all the ice off of the continent, East Antarctica would be like a big chunk of land and West Antarctica would kind of be like an archipelago of islands. And that's important to know because that means that a lot of West Antarctica's glaciers rest on land that is lower than sea level. And one thing we're seeing is with these warmer waters circulating, they're working their way under the glaciers and eating them away from beneath. So, well, over the past century, you know, glacial melting in Greenland has contributed significantly to sea level rise and thermal expansion has contributed significantly to sea level rise. What we suspect will be the case is that this disintegration of Antarctica's glaciers, which is accelerated by warm water eating them away from underneath, is going to outpace those two other contributors sometime this century. And it could happen really quickly. But because of the fact that this continent of ice is so remote, we have basically no observational data from the ocean ice interface. We definitely don't know what's happening beneath the ice for the most part. So like all of our models around sea level rise have very, very, very sketchy data from West Antarctica. And so I went on this mission last year with a bunch of scientists that was 60 days long. We went on an icebreaker. We set sail from in Chile. And we, we, were, we headed out to Thwaites Glacier, which is considered sort of like a cork and a wine bottle that holds a lot of the ice of West Antarctica in place. And we know that it is starting to slip out of its spot, that the ice itself, the glacier itself is starting to break apart really rapidly. We can see that in satellite data, but we have literally, no one had ever been to the calving edge of the Waits Glacier before in the history of the planet. We were the first people to go there. And so we spent, you know, five weeks frantically gathering information. One of my favorite things that we did was... <laughs> This is going to sound totally insane. We would find elephant seals and find them on these remote tiny island chains, but also on ice flows. We would use satellite data to identify them. They were kind of like big fat jelly beans. 
we'd sail over to their region, find a good pod of them, good, good little, you know, like 30, 40 of them. And then we would get in our Zodiacs and uh, (laughs) boat over to the ice floes. And then you have to work to sort of separate the males from the females because we wanted the females because the males weigh four tons and you don't have enough tranquilizers to knock them out. It's like really expensive to knock out a male elephant seal. So there were scientists in our group who were like really good at handling elephant seals and they get, you get these, it all sounds insane, but you get these tall sticks and you hold them up higher than the elephant seal, male elephant seal's head. And then the male elephant seal rears up, tries to like attack the stick and then you move the stick back. So you move the stick uh, to get the elephant seal to kind of try to attack it. So you like Run ice flows, separating males from females. There's blow darts involved. Then you <laughs> the female elephant seals. And then we would literally epoxy transponders to their foreheads. And they dive really deeply and they sometimes dive under the ice. And so, you know, you would essentially send them with these little machines beneath the ice sheet to record temperature, salinity, conductivity of the water column so that we could have a clearer picture of just how hot the water is beneath the weights, which will help us create a more accurate model for how quickly that ice shelf could disintegrate. So we spent like, you know, months in (laughs) this insanely remote part of the world sedating and tagging elephant seals we sent a submarine under the ice you know you would take these big sediment samples which is sort of like lobbing a giant straw over the side of the boat and letting it fall to the ocean floor and then puncture the ocean floor and suck up a bunch of sediment all with the hopes of gathering first first person observational data that will help you better calculate how quickly sea levels will rise in the next hundred years. What does it feel like? It was the wildest thing I've ever experienced in my life. I think the thing that was most shocking to me, I mean, at a visceral level, when we finally arrived at the weights, it took us about 22 days to get there. My program officer told me before I signed up for the program, if I was sure I wanted to do it because it was easier for them to get help to folks on the space station than it was to get help to us if anything went wrong. So it took us like 22 days to get there. And when we arrived, I think I was like, oh, it looks sort of like the wall in Game of Thrones. (laughs) It's just like this gigantic, never-ending ice wall and it looms over the ship and you're just like okay I'm at the edge of this continent that is covered in ice and it is of a scale so big that I like just have no way of comprehending really what I'm seeing it made me feel very 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 tiny and then I think the other thing is just, you know, we worked in this region for weeks and at one point 
it started to get harder to do the work that we were doing because there were suddenly more big tabular icebergs. The ocean started to get really messy with growlers and bergy bits, which are actual technical terms for different sizes of icebergs. And, you know, because none of us had ever been, no one had ever been there before, you have no reference point for whether any of that is normal or exceptional. And all you can do is kind of respond. And you're so far, we're so far at the southern, at the bottommost part of the earth that we got satellite data like every week or so. And so we really didn't know like what was happening. We noticed a change. But you, you're just you're really navigating in the dark. And then finally, we got an aerial image of the region where we were working, and it turned out that like a massive chunk of the ice shelf had collapsed all around us. Oh, wow. And that to me was shocking because, in some ways, I knew something was different, but I didn't know that this like massive geological transformation had just happened none of us did because there's no human no institutional knowledge no human experience to map that on top of and that was very wild and sort of deeply disconcerting yeah so it was it was, it was crazy yeah wow <laughs> Yeah. So now I'm trying to write a book about that and having a child at the same time. And it's a weird process, but something will come of it. Yeah. Can you say more? You, <laughs> both, both topics simultaneously? Yeah. Yeah. That's the goal is to sort of put the two in conversation with one another. I feel like a lot of people our age... We're sort of wrestling with that question about regeneration on a planet with its dwindling capacity to carry us and us contributing to that. And, and yet, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer to that question. I think they're sort of standing in the difficulty of it. And this book, I think, attempts to do that and sort of narrates that journey to the calving edge of the Waits Glacier alongside the journey to becoming a mother and choosing to have a kid right now. And it's, and it's written in the second person. So it, instead of using I as the pronoun, it uses you with this idea to both sort of hopefully carry readers into that experience that I just described to you, but also to recognize that some of these anxieties we have around how to live on this planet right now aren't mine alone. They're ones that we all share, but that we don't necessarily have quite the language capacity yet or a, a public conversation in the commons that sort of maps or charts that anxiety. So it, I guess, makes an assumption that there's something shared in what's unsettling. And, yeah, to sort of create a space for that shared anxiety. Yeah. That's super interesting. Well, and it, you you mentioned a word in the book that I hadn't heard before, uh, end sickness. 
Yeah. Sort of like seasickness, but I think considerably different as well. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually wonder if maybe you would be open to reading this section where this comes in. Sure. I think it's page 66. These days, all it takes is a little unusual warmth to make me feel nauseated. I call this new form of climate anxiety end sickness. Like motion sickness or seasickness, end sickness is its own kind of vertigo, a physical response to living in a world that is moving in unusual ways towards what I imagine as a kind of event horizon. A burble of bile rises from my stomach and a string of observations I've been hearing in these parts adulterates the joy of our afternoon adventure. Because the Gulf of Maine is warmer than ever before, the bottom-dwelling cod, pollock, and winter flounder are pulling away from shore. Because the Gulf of Maine is warmer than ever before, the shrimp fishery has been closed for years. Because the Gulf of Maine is warmer than ever before, phytoplankton are disappearing, green crab populations are exploding, and sea squirts are smothering the seafloor. Because the Gulf of Maine is warmer than ever before, the lobster are moving into deeper, cooler waters, keeping the lobster men and women away from home for longer. Because the Gulf of Maine is warmer than ever before, everyone and everything that lives here is changing radically. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I, I guess one of the, there's a variety of questions I have around this. And one is, how does one counteract end sickness? How do we, what's the preventative medicine for end sickness? I'm not sure that there's like preventative medicine. I often think that if anything, we have to learn to dwell in it and be deeply uncomfortable and that really from that place of that I think is often accompanied by a certain kind of grief, do we start to move towards the knowledge that, you know, that the folks in Staten Island faced as well, that like things have to change. We have to be part of the change. We're going to have to live in really fundamentally different ways, but that doesn't have to mean the loss of the things that are most important to who we are and how we think of ourselves as human beings. So I would say you kind of have to dwell in it. That being said, you know, I also think my remedy is always like time in my body outside. And I think that there's sometimes a danger with the awesome uptick in climate activism to also forget that there is like a real spiritual, physical relationship that we have with the more than human world. That's also something that ought to be tended to as we fight these fights to try to preserve the places that maybe not preserve, but help maintain the places that we most cherish. And, you know, so it's like, Definitely go to the protest, but also go surf or go hike that mountain or, you know, take a, I think one of the most beautiful things about the pandemic is that I see everyone in my neighborhood just out taking walks. And so many people have commented to me that it's a really beautiful spring 
And I'm like, I think it is a pretty spring, but I also just think we're noticing it more because we like aren't doing other things. And that's really important. <laughs> so, you know, do that too. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's beautiful. I've heard the phrase twice now, this, this more than human world. And I wonder what you are referring to. What does that mean for you? Talk a little bit about that phrase. If so, you would. Sure. I feel like nature's always feels like a construction to me. It's like man and nature, man versus nature, or this thing that's not human that is divine somehow. And I think that it kind of like introduces an unnecessary dichotomy. So I try not to say nature. I feel sort of the same about the environment. I think that there are kind of cultural constructions. And then something that's circulated a lot is saying non-human. But then I'm like, that still like reinforces that binary <laughs> non-human actors. I'm like, well, who cares that they're not human? I don't know. So um, more than human is something that I think I picked up from Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is this really amazing botanist and a member of the Potawatomi Nation, and she wrote a book called Braiding Sweetgrass that I adore. Shameless plug for that book. Yeah, amazing, yeah. Um, and she uses that word, and so I think I got it from her, and I feel like, you know, she talks about, like, what it means, for instance, that we use pronouns like it to describe a caribou, when different languages in the world might use he or she pronouns or pronouns that they would also use in relationship to human beings. And so she thinks a lot about how language shapes our relationship with the world in which we live. And in that sense, I feel like I trust her and I like her term more than human. It feels the closest to recognizing a kind of reciprocity with all that isn't us. <laughs> yeah, no, it's beautiful. Thank you for that. I, I I uncovered an old op-ed of yours that was in our local paper. Oh, yeah. Which, which shares the title of which, and this may not have been your choice or not, but was called Ocean State of Mind. And I wonder if you did choose that. I did. Um, I did choose that. That's great. As I, What were you thinking about like what does that evoke what does that term evoke for you when when you were writing that op-ed piece a few years ago i mean i think i was shamelessly appealing to the sensibility of rhode islanders <laughs> i had just moved here and it is and it is called the ocean state and there's like some pun in their state of my i don't know ocean state of mind <laughs> It just seemed right. I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for that one. Why it's did good. you choose it? Well, I mean, I can't I can't avoid uh, Nas, the rapper, of course, with New York State of Mind, just a prevalent term that's like, you know, filtered into our, our culture for sure. And I just, you know, I'm I've recently become a mindfulness teacher and you know, the the intersection of of this work with the Ocean State of Mind project is is really bridging and, and uncovering the links between mindfulness and our 
desire to preserve the ocean. And you were just saying like, there's so much to be learned from simply being outdoors and so much for us to remember about what it is to be human and perhaps even what it is to be more than human if we're out in, in, in nature, if we're out in the ocean. And so the, the term just sort of came together. I mean, don't you love that feeling of like, after the end of a day surfing, you can like get back on land, but you still almost feel the ocean like rising and falling in your body because you've been inside that rhythm all day. And it's just like some kind of profound knowledge that then you like carry back to your dinner table and there isn't exactly like words for it, but it reminds you that you are part of something so much bigger than your little tiny blip that you're, that you inhabit every day for sure. You care, you know, yeah. it changes the way you live, I think. Yeah, absolutely. There, were, there was a sort of hilarious article in the times this Sunday where a non-surfer was writing about watching surfers most of his life and going, these people are incredibly happy for doing this thing that for the most part, they're never doing. He's like, <laughs> I, don't, I only see them surfing about 1% of 1%. That's really which, funny. <laughs> which is very true. I mean, I've, I've been a surfer for 30 years. And I, if it's 1% of the time that you're Actually, preparing to go and driving and checking the forecast and doing all the other things you're doing, then it's the part where you're standing up on the wave. So it was it's sort of like... Less. It's probably less than 1% of 1%. Oh, easy. I mean, if you were surfing in Oregon, you know, anytime you, you got to travel and you got to get to these places. I live 45 minutes, so it's it's immediately an hour and a half yeah. decision just to get down to the coast, which is why oh, my yeah. wife and I keep talking about trying to move to the coast. But Yeah, it's like I think back to those trips to the coast to go surf. It was like an hour and 20 minutes, our break from Portland and all everything's good about it. Like you listen to your music and you gotta, you know, unload the boards, carry them down. It's a whole thing. You gotta, yeah, it, it, it definitely takes over way more time. <laughs> never thought of that. And then like the amount of times I catch a wave is even probably less than average. <laughs> I, it's a signal for how amazing it is. That's for sure. Yeah. And it tunes you to it. Like, in fact, when I went to Antarctica, my surf buddy in Oregon, a couple months before we were going to, we were going out surfing on the Oregon coast and checking the forecast. And like, that's a beautiful thing in and of itself that you have to like, look at what the ocean is doing and be mindful of that. And I remember he said to me, he was like, have you ever looked around the at the ocean around Antarctica? And I was like, no, I guess I really haven't. And you know, the the wave maps of the world, it's like, you know, orange is, I don't know, swell that's like 10 or 15 feet. Red is like 15 to 20 feet. And then pink is like 30 feet. And he was like, you're going there and you have to cross the Drake Passage and it's just like a pink pulse every 
every two days. So good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the only person who knew like how insane it was to get to Antarctica. And then it turned out that the Drake passage basically like ate our ship for dinner. <laughs> everyone was throwing up it, and like the whole boat for two days was going like this oh my lord yeah so tommy knew the surfer knew he was like i know what's up in antarctica it's crazy yeah. so it attunes you it makes you pay attention surfing definitely makes you pay attention to things that most people don't yeah the the folks that run the the some of my mindfulness teachers were asking about my own sort of personal mindfulness practice and I've kind of come to the practice recently and I I said but I have spent thirty years just sitting in the ocean staring at the horizon for hours on end <laughs> and then yeah. every once in a while turning around and like spending fifteen seconds doing something and then staring at the horizon for. <laughs> I remember in Costa Rica, it's like I would stare at the horizon just trying to look for the real big swell because when it came, I would paddle straight into it. I was like, you are not going to eat me for dinner. I'm going to like get out of way out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Elizabeth, I know we're coming up on time and this has just been a real joy for me. This hour sort of disappeared. And I just want to say thank you for putting aside some time right before the birth of your child. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's been a really fun conversation. It's rare that I get to talk climate change and surfing at the same time. Yeah. Well, you know, those of us that are out in nature and love it uh, are looking to preserve it any way we can. For sure. So thank you again and have a wonderful rest of your day and week and next couple weeks thank you that'll be a whole different kind of swell to ride for sure yeah <laughs> but yeah we're into it and looking forward to catching some waves on the other side well thank you for that elizabeth her book rising can be found everywhere and a link on our website oceanstateofmind.blue in our next episode, we will be talking with Luke Hostey, a veteran of the elite British commando unit, the Royal Marines, and how curiosity led him to war, and how freeing his mind through breathwork and freediving helped bring him home. That's next. Nice.